Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today I'm speaking with Craig Rowland. He's the co-author of the most comprehensive book on the permanent portfolio. It was written in 2012, and it's called The Permanent Portfolio, Harry Brown's Long-Term Investment Strategy. The permanent portfolio, for those who aren't aware, is a brilliant, low-volatility portfolio that was originally developed by Harry Brown. And its genius is, is in its simplicity. So it's 25% stocks, 25% gold, 25% long-term treasuries, and 25% cash. And it delivers a very decent rate of return over the long run with very low volatility. And it's very easy to, to stick with through major market drawdowns. Craig is a software entrepreneur. He previously sold a company to Cisco Systems. He worked for the Pentagon's chief of naval operations. And he's the founder of Sandfly Security, an agentless Linux security solution. Welcome to the podcast, Craig. Great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Awesome. So what was your investing journey like prior to discovering the permanent portfolio? Like, What were the things you tried out that eventually led you to that approach? So I, I think like a lot of people starting out, you get subjected to a lot of marketing from Wall Street about everyone's above average. If you just buy our fund, we could give you you know, th this edge. So I think a lot of times when I started investing in the early 90s, yeah, I probably used typical mutual funds, but not a lot of savings just because I was starting out my career. What was really pivotal for me was I was working on a company called Wheel Group, which was started by the founding members of the Air Force Information Warfare Squadron. I was hired to write network attack tools as part of vulnerability scanners. So it was basically, I was paid to break into computer networks for a living. And this colored a lot of my thinking on risk. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit. But the main thing that happened is that company got bought by Cisco. And then I had another startup that got bought by Cisco, right? So I've been in this game a bit. So the first startup, they got bought by Cisco Systems. I was an employee. We all had stock options. And I suddenly found myself sitting on some money. And I also got to watch the founders of that company make a lot of money, like almost $10 million a piece. And then not all of them, but, but several of them were basically back to zero within about three years, right? And what happens when you go through an experience like this is you get bombarded with Wall Street. Everyone wants to manage your money. And so a lot of people at the company got inundated with overnight letters and, hey, we want to manage your money. You know, you don't get brought up to, you know, the 11th floor of the building. You get brought up to the 12th floor. They give you free coffee, right? So it, it's an interesting experience. But what really happened there is I got some advice from my father about using index funds. And essentially, I looked at the data and read Jack Bogle's early books from Vanguard. And I was convinced that not everyone could be above average and indexing was the way to go. So every time I got called up by these brokers, I essentially was like, yeah, I'm just going to buy the Vanguard index fund. And they never called me again. <laughs> they just immediately knew I was immune. But uh, I saw other people get pulled into day trading and, and elaborate expensive funds and churning the portfolio. And it was something I've noticed a lot of times with very smart people that if you think if you're smart in one area, 
you can run into a big mistake by thinking you're smart in every area. And so that this happens. The guys I work with are very, very smart, but the, you know, but that doesn't mean you're necessarily smart at doing investments, right? So it doesn't necessarily comply, you know, apply that way. And you see this a lot with doctors and attorneys and stuff. They say, hey, I'm so smart in this area. I'm surely I'm going to be a great investor because I'm a brilliant surgeon. And no, trust me, right? You're not. So this really colored my thinking. So for a long time, I was an index fund investor by large, which was pretty good advice, all things considered. But I became concerned after my other company got bought that I, again, was getting inundated with overnight letters from Wall Street. And I was like, boy, now it'd be very hard to re-earn this money if something were to happen. So I started looking at every possible investment option. I was like, what, what can we do to, you know, to make this a little bit better? And I came across Harry Brown because I was familiar with libertarian, his libertarian party run and things like that. And I looked at his portfolio, and at first, I just completely discounted it. I like, this got 25% gold. I'm like, this guy's just nuts, right? There's just no way. But I said, look, I, I am going to look at everything. And I started looking at it. I started looking at the data. I started running my own analysis on it. I started going through the various scenarios that could play out over an investor's lifetime. And I, it's like, you know, I, used to, I thought he was crazy, right, when I first read it. But then I realized later he's crazy like a fox, that actually was a very smart way to do funny investing. And this, again, comes out of my security experience because working in security, unpredictable things happen all the time. People get surprised all the time. And in security, we have this idea of defense in depth or you know, like firewalls. And so actually what I found with Harry Brown's philosophy is that the four piece components are what I call firewalls for your life savings. Right. So if you do 100% in stock and the stock market does, you know, a 90% swan dive like it did in the 30s, that's a major disaster. But if I split my money four ways, 25% each, and each asset is really not much to do with each other, if my stock portfolio dies by 90%, that's, you know, a 90% reduction on 25% of the total. Yeah, it's not great, but. You know, odds are I still have at least 75, 80% of my portfolio is probably not going to be affected. And that assumes the other assets didn't go up to offset that loss. So, this is kind of my whole background of how I came to this decision. I, I looked at the philosophy, I looked at the theory, I ran the test, I kind of went through various scenarios of how things could go sideways. And I was like, each time I kept coming back to this portfolio for me and my situation, I felt was a pretty safe solution. Yeah, and that's a good point about the early 1930s because you know you had the stock portion stocks, like you said, went down 90%. Long-term treasuries did pretty well. Gold did pretty well. Your cash was stable. So that really says something when you've designed a portfolio that could survive that. That's a, that's a pretty amazing thing. So going back to Harry Brown, so do you want to talk a little, little bit about who Harry Brown is and how he you know, evolved towards this approach? Yeah, and I hope not to do him a disservice, but basically he became very well known in the early 70s for predicting the gold boom, because essentially gold was made illegal to own pretty much from the early 1930s to the early 1970s. As an American, you could not legally own it. It was still tied to the US dollar. He made a prediction in one of his earliest books about that the decoupling of gold from the dollar and being able to buy it would allow gold to rise up significantly in price because it's been held down artificially for many, many years of the peg. I, I forgot what it was, $30 or something. But essentially, he he was right. His analysis was correct. So he was advising people to buy gold because 
once the coupling broke in the 70s, the inflation was going to kick in and the dollar is going to get smashed and the gold would rise up well above what the current price was. And and he actually made a lot of money with that prediction and his advice panned out. But I think as he got through the 70s, he realized eventually this was going to come under control. You know, in the early 80s when Reagan came in, uh, Paul Volcker, I think, implemented very high interest rates to try to just smash this thing. And I think he kind of knew the writing was on the wall, right? Gold can only go up so much, you know? So he eventually said, I need to come up with a way to protect his own money, right? And that's when he worked on the idea along with, I think, with his co-authors, Terry Coxon. And they kind of came up with this idea of a massively distributed portfolio, you know? But the first version of it was not quite as simple. It had, a, you know, uh, more assets to it as well. But eventually, as he kind of refined the idea, through the 80s, he kind of came up with the, the split, which I think is a nod to the fact that most humans work better with a simple solution. And so I think eventually that's kind of what he pushed for split because it worked well enough. I mean, you you know, and Jack Bogle was the same way. Like you, you can overcomplicate stuff, but it's rarely the case that a more complicated solution beats a simple one, especially with something like investing. You got to keep things very, very simple because there's human emotions involved. And when you add complexity to a portfolio, you start giving people the chance to start second guessing themselves and with their emotions. And that could lead to big, big trouble. So I think Jack Bo, and I think also Harry Brown both recognize that there's this human psychology component that needs to be tamed as well. It's not just about pure performance, is it's, you know, can you can you handle the bumps? I I had a kind of a mentor of mine used to say, we used to talk about things. And, and he, he had a famous quote about net, network speed. I said, oh, we should try to make the networks go as fast as possible. And he said, speed is fine. Just be sure you can handle the turns. And and that's really kind of the philosophy I found with Harry Brown, which is like, okay, performance is great, but you know, eventually you're going to get a curve in the road. You're just going to fly off the cliff, right? So I think that's kind of how the portfolio came to be. And as he simplified it over the years, you'll notice his books got thinner and thinner, right? Because <laughs> the idea got simpler. And, and, and in a way, the book rewrote if I had to rewrite it again, I'd probably make it a fourth the size, right? You know, just because you just want to simplify things as best you can. But, you know, we were attempting to explain the whys of each asset the way, you know, Harry Brown did, you know, because, and also offer modern solutions for the, for the asset classes. But I think that's kind of how he came to, to his portfolio was essentially just trying to protect his own assets first and then share it with everyone. Gotcha. Yeah. I've read a little bit about those earlier versions of the portfolio. It had like Swiss francs and it was a lot more complicated. And yeah, then eventually he settled on on that method. So the book I read from Harry Brown was the simple one, Fail Safe Investing. So that was kind of one of the original, that was in the late 90s. It was one of the original idea proposals for the permanent portfolio. What inspired you to, like, what were some of the limitations of that book that inspired you to write your book in 2012? You know, over time, a lot of the advice, you know, advice shifts, new financial instruments come available, right? You know, so in the 90s, indexing was not as popular as it is today. You know, so, you know, he he would list some funds out and he'd say, oh, maybe you could try an S&P 500 fund or something like that. But, you know, at the time there was like, I think it's probably only Vanguard, you know, those index, maybe Fidelity had a fund. I don't recall that Fidelity never would have advertised it, right? I think they had a Spartan index fund or something. But, you know, so more asset classes became available. But again, this could cause trouble with investors. Hey, I don't want to put together a permanent portfolio. Well, now you have 50 assets of, you know, for stocks. Well, which one do I pick? So again, you're allowing that complexity, 
you know, the, the financial markets are selling more products and you're adding complexity. And so part of the goal of the book was explaining in very good detail why this asset is being chosen, where it could go right, where it could go wrong, and why we suggest these particular things as the course. And again, you'll notice in the book tend to be very, very simple. You know, hey, a total stock market fund, own your bonds directly if you can. If that's a hassle, there's some good ETFs now that do long-term treasuries, which at the time, Harry Brown wrote that book. There, no, there were no long-term treasury bond funds, not of the type that would have been suitable. At the time he wrote that book, there were gold ETFs were, had never been invented. So although it's best to own the gold as directly as you can, either you know self-custody or with a, a specific custody provider, a lot of people simply can't do that for whatever reason. So we gave advice like, well, these gold ETFs appear to be you know, uh, the best of the best of the group if you want to use it. And again, cash alternatives also were in the past, maybe you could have bought, you know, uh, short-term, you know, treasuries. Well, now they're, again, they're, they're really good treasury, short-term treasury bond funds that are out ETF format that people could use. So we kind of wanted to update the assets that are available, give people some guidance on it. And then some of the more arcane knowledge he presented, such as, you know, hey, I suggest holding some of your assets overseas, well, the U.S. tax laws and disclosure laws are radically different than they were in the 90s when he wrote that book. So, you know, all that need to be updated just to keep people out of out of trouble, you know, in terms of disclosure, what you need to say and, and say to the IRS and the Treasury. And, and we go on to great lengths about that. Like, you know, you, if you have an overseas account, you must file FBAR. You must disclose the IRS. Do not, you know, go about doing, you know, do not avoid doing it. And we explain the process of what's involved. So they're just little things like that, that really need to be updated, especially if you want to follow his full philosophy. Gotcha. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. And so one of the key features of the permanent portfolio is that it limits drawdowns. So what do most investors not understand about risk and drawdowns? Because you talk to a lot of people and they advocate extremely stock-heavy portfolios and they say, well, if the market drops 50%, just ride it out. Like, What do you think those investors don't fully understand about drawdowns and risk? What they don't understand is that your timeline is different from the market. And what I mean by that is you know, you, you're sold this idea, hey, you're going to work for 40 years at the same company or whatever, and you're going to retire at age 65 and start going on your princess cruises around the world, whatever, right? But that's just not how life works. I mean, you know, you could get, you know, a serious illness at age 40 that takes you out of work, and now you need to use your life savings, right? Or there could be some other family emergency or something else might happen to you. So now if the stock market goes 50%, you can't wait for it to recover because you need the money right now, right? So- you know, so you need to get this idea out of your head that, you know, this timeline is going to work out exactly as planned because I've never seen anything go according to plan, right? It's just, you have to expect that something's going to go wrong. And uh, part of it too is it's easy for people to say, to run a spreadsheet and say, yeah, I could, I could deal with a 50% drawdown. I'm, I'm good with that. But when it's like real money on the line, I don't know anyone. I've never met anyone who could just suck up a 50% loss of their entire net worth. Maybe when you're young and you got like, you know, you get barely have two pennies to rub together, you can do it. But, you know, or you're very wealthy. So you could, you could, you do have the cash to write it out. But most people can't and are not going to sit around and watch a 50% decline without freaking out. And you're usually going to freak out at the exact bottom of the market. <laughs> <laughs> you, you should be sitting still and you're frequently going to 
freak out and do something even dumber than if he had just done nothing at all. So it's very important to have a portfolio that has low volatility because you need to not just diversify risk in the market. You need to just you need to diversify your psychological risk that you're going to be able to sit still. And even with the de- permanent portfolio, it's very hard for people even to do that because I always tell people you got to look at a portfolio in total. You look at your total net worth, but people still want to focus on one asset. Oh my God, my bonds have dropped twenty percent. Well, how's your whole portfolio do? Well, it's up you know five percent for the year, but my bonds are down twenty percent. I got to do something like. Leave it alone. People can barely do that, right? So this idea that you're going to do 100% stocks, you're just going to sit there, chill out, and you know drink your strawberry pina colada in Cancun while you got your 60%, 70% loss on your portfolio is like totally nuts. I and mean, there are some people who can do it. They have that psychological makeup, you know, but most people, you know, probably will not do it, you know? I, so I would strongly urge you to consider the reality of what you would do. And it's hard to even mentally model it. You could say, well, I'd be fine, but until you go through it, and we saw this in 2008, I was already in the portfolio by 2008 permanent portfolio. I think I was up 2% for the year. That must you have know, been such a, such a relief that, to have that approach during that it, event. It was, you know, but you know, you're watching things and you know, the, the assets do not move exactly, you know, in real time, right? It takes a while. It's like steering a ship. Right? It takes a while for them to turn, but then they turned very, very suddenly. So the stock market started doing some weird things, and then the bonds really weren't doing much. And then all of a sudden, you know, as the crowd mentality is like, oh my God, this is this is bad, they start flocking into the bonds, then they explode. And I used to tell people it's like owning a convenience store. Like, you know, my convenience store, I stock many different inventory items. I'm happy to sell to you. So if you come in and you want to buy some bonds. Uh, because you know that's just what you're you want my convenience store i have bonds i'm happy to sell you for the correct price to rebalance right and you don't oh you don't want your gold anymore or you don't want your stocks because they okay i'll buy those from you right so you really need to have this mentality that you're not married to these assets you got to look at everything in total and you need to be able to also say i'm willing to rebalance into the storm because but again if you look at your total portfolio value if you haven't taken a big loss if you're not down 50, 60, 70%, you can say, yeah, I'm ready to buy more stocks. You know, But if, if you're in a permanent portfolio, you're down 1% or 2% or maybe even up a little bit like I was. Now you could say, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell these bonds. I'm going to buy this stock. I feel comfortable following the plan so that you know, there's a lot of things at play here. Definitely. One of the core, I think, beliefs of Harry Brown and the permanent portfolio is basically that macroeconomics is unpredictable, that no one can really do it. You know, you turn on financial cable TV all the time. Everybody's got their prognostications. We're going to have a recession. There's going to be inflation. Inflation's going to fall, blah, blah, blah. So why is it such folly to try to predict macroeconomics? You know, it's just, I always, when I see people doing this, I, I don't watch financial news. First of all, I advise people just stop watching it. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> also the, the other thing is, look, I always say to myself, if you're so smart, why ain't you rich, right? These guys, these journalists, you know, I mean, so it's one of these things where predicting the market worked, right? It would, everyone would be doing it and there'd be no, the market arbitrage would probably actually decrease, right? Because everyone, everyone would know what everyone else is doing. So I, I think one of the examples, we might've used it in the book too at the same time. 
you have to understand Wall Street is dominated by professional traders. Probably 90 plus percent of all the trades each day are happening between professionals. That might be fund to fund or fund to you know brokerages or something like that. So these people have all the insider info before you do, right? They have access to analytics and PhDs and GPU processing power and you know Yale and Harvard MBAs to look at every particular detail. They have all this stuff. And you, you're sitting there watching, reading some CNBC article, and you think you're going to outmaneuver these dudes. I mean, come on, right? You need a really reality check. So the thing here is like, think of it this way too. You got two people on Wall Street. You have a group of Yale MBAs and a group of Harvard MBAs, and they are initiating a trade against each other. You know, one's buying IBM because they think it's a great buy. The other sell at IBM because they think, oh, this, there's no way it's going to lose. You know, now these people are equally well-educated, but they've reached an opposite conclusion, which what that tells you is there isn't enough information there for you to make the right choice. And, and what it ends up being actually is that by not trading in the market, by just owning everything, you actually are taking advantage of all these millions of decisions that are happening each day in the index. The, it, it, th these decisions are rolled into the index and you just sit back and the way you make more money, the reason you make more money is you're keeping your transaction fees low and you're not going up against these guys. I'll give you another example. I, I work with some guys, they, they used to do FPGA programming, just custom chip programming. One of the problems they had to contend with was they had systems plugged into the core network at Wall Street and they wanted to keep the fiber optic connections as short as possible to make sure there was no latency that was going to interfere with their high frequency trades. So again, this is who you're going against. You're going up against guys who are trying to, to limit you know, network uh, latency issues and not just late network latency. They, they did all the processing on the network card because it was too slow to go from the network card to the CPU and the RAM to do the processing and then back to the card, the back to the network, right? So just don't do it. Just don't. <laughs> just it, it. So it's just a bad idea to trade against these guys. Not, and that doesn't even include the tax impacts and all this other stuff too of, of, of trading in now. Gotcha. So let's talk about some of the assets in the permanent portfolio. And so the first one is stocks, which we've we've talked about. So within the stock portion, you've advocated for index funds. And we talked a little bit about this earlier. So why index funds? Why is it kind of folly to try to pick spots and move around between sectors and that kind of thing? Yeah, look, and, and I get it. For some people, if you We'll, we'll probably touch on this about a variable portfolio. If, if you want to pick stocks, if you're an industry expert and you could, and you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying you couldn't spot certain trends, and there might be certain stocks you're willing to take gambles on. That's a separate issue. For the core portfolio, I recommend indexing because indexing again is taking advantage of all the knowledge that the market has about the current situation, and even the predictions about the future, and it's bundling it to a very low cost package. Keep those transactions low. And the reason the, the transaction fees low. And the reason that's important is let's say you had a fund that said, hey, we're beating the stock market. You know, stock market averages 10% a year. You know, we're, we made 11%. That's great, right? But is that after their fees, before their fees? How much are the fees? Oh, well, that, that fund's charging one and a half percent a year. Okay, so now is it 11% minus one and a half? So now I'm at nine and a half percent versus my index fund. If I just done nothing, I'd have been 10%. Right. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of delusions there. The other thing with the index fund is that you get instant diversification. So again, if you have one company crater, it's not 
it's not going to hurt you. Like, let, yeah, I, I don't know what the current distribution is on, on the index funds, but let's say it's Apple. Let's say you woke up tomorrow, you found out, you know, a meteor struck Apple's headquarters and it's now a big crater, right? And the company was erased from the, the index. I don't know what the index would go down, you know, assuming there's no collateral damage, but, you know, hypothetically metal, metal game here, you know, maybe go down a few percent, right? If the Apple stock just stopped trading, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Whereas if you pick a handful of stocks in your own, you're now introducing that volatility and that risk right into your right into your diversification where you don't you don't really want it, right? Let's say I'm going to pick six stocks. I'm going to keep it as my stock portfolio. If any one of those stocks dies or has a problem, now now you're actually taking a pretty big loss. So I highly recommend you index. And again, just from the stress factor, you just don't have to think about it. it there's no way that everyone is going to be above average. So when you own the index fund, you end up being above average because over time, you're not paying these high fees. And I think over a 20-year period, you'll probably beat 90, 95% of every fund in existence. right? And you're like, well, there, that still means it was 5 to 10% that beat the index. Well, you don't know that 20 years earlier, right? Are you that good? You know, you're going to go back in time. So, you know, you're not going to just forget it. You know, if you think of this like a, a, a gambling casino, you would never want to play that the game, right? If this was a, a you know a game in a casino with such bad odds, you'd be you'd be better off just putting it all on roulette on black, right? The odds are so so bad. Roulette offers better chances, so I, I just recommend indexing. Yeah, and I was going to talk about it later, but the whole idea of the variable portfolio, I think, is a good concept. I use it with my own money. I'll I'll invest in index funds and an asset allocation, and then I have a portion of my net worth that I play with, that I pick stocks with. So how does the variable portfolio tie into all this? It's So variable portfolio is totally optional. I personally don't use one myself because my, I actually invest my time in startups, right? I'm, I, I invest my time and money into what, what I do for at, currently at Sandfly. But other people, you know, they, they like doing stock picking, you know, and you might be good at it. You, again, you might have certain industry knowledge that allows you to get an edge off, or you might enjoy like you do, like value stock investing, which a lot of people enjoy doing. Great, go for it. And I think the variable portfolio gives you an out for that gambling side that people have, right? So you're not, you know, you don't have to be dogmatic about it. I, I think you know the main thing is it's just got to be money you can afford to lose, right? That's that's the criteria. If you're like okay, I got hundred grand. I could put in this variable portfolio. I got, you know, 900 grand or, you know, whatever it is. And my core, you know, life savings, I'm not going to gamble with, but the other rule with the variable portfolio is if you lose that money, you can't use the permanent portfolio of money to replenish your losses, right? This is a classic thing that gambling addicts run into. I gotta, I gotta make my losses back. I'm just gonna, uh, I'm gonna temporarily take some money out from my IRA. So I'm like, no. If you lose the money, you lose the money. That that's it. So I think that's the one thing that uh, if you're gonna do variable portfolio, you got to mentally say to yourself, this is what this is where the money's coming from. I'm okay if I lose everything, and I'm not gonna use my core savings to replenish it. You get other savings if you want, but don't don't use your core savings to replenish and double down. Gotcha. Understood. And so with this stock argument, so the permanent portfolio is designed for the four economic conditions. You've got prosperity, deflation, recession, inflation. So stocks are geared towards prosperity, correct? They are prosperity. And I'd also argue even inflation too, because mm -hmm. companies will adjust prices 
to stay afloat, right? Stay profitable. So you're starting to see that even now. There, there is there is high inflation in the U.S. I think, despite what you know, whatever political people, political power say, and that you're starting to see companies adjust their pricing and all sorts of stuff to accommodate that, right? So there's a bit of a minor element. I don't think for bad inflation, the the stocks would be quite as good as gold for that immediate kick. But in general, they do help a little bit. Prosperity is mainly where the stock market helps. And, and stocks could drive heaps of growth, right? So like, for instance, talk about the variable portfolio thing. Like if I had a variable portfolio, I would probably just simply overweight stocks with more index fund, right? As an example, right? You know, just because over time, and again, the time doesn't necessarily match your time, but over time, the stock market generally is going to outperform the other assets, is my experience. So, you know, if, so, so the, it's important to have the stocks for prosperity and you also never know when prosperity is going to hit. It might look really bleak and then, you know, all of a sudden it's going to turn around really quickly and the stock market can move many percentage points over, I forgot what the total is, but over a certain period of time, it's only a few days. The stock market can make very big moves and the rest of the time it's relatively flat. So if you're not in the market on those days, because you think you're watching the latest CNBC that's going on on. You can miss all your gains. So I, I would be, you know, you always want to stay invested for that time of the prosperity comes because you just don't know when it's going to be. Yeah. And there can be such incredible violent moves to the upside. I mean, you've like this last year, you had a 26% return in the index 2009. Like it just, it can come out of nowhere. Like when you least expect it, when everybody's extremely bearish usually. Yeah, absolutely. So the next one's gold. So you know, it's a controversial asset. Warren Buffett, he he kind of derides it sometimes. A lot of people will say it's just a shiny yellow rock. What are the chief advantages to having gold in your portfolio? Yeah, and you know what? I was kind of of the same opinion. I get it. Warren Buffett is he owns companies, right? So people are like, oh, he's a value stock. No, he owns the companies, right? He's a completely different kettle of fish. Yeah, totally. He also different. gets piles of insider information that you're never going to get access to, right? His political, so please don't stop comparing, you know, people compare themselves to Warren, stop comparing yourself to Warren Buffett. He's just not, he, he does that, oh, gee, golly shucks act, but he's just not, right? Just don't, don't compare yourself to the guy. He's um, getting deals on preferred shares for Bank of America when they're in uh, distress. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, just so, you know, so for the average person, my view on gold is until every central bank of the world decides to get rid of it, I'm going to hold gold. And But as long as central banks are holding gold, they can't say, oh, it's not real money. Well, why do you have a basement full of the stuff, right? So, it, you know, it's complete nonsense. Don't listen to these guys, right? I wouldn't even be surprised to find out Warren Buffett has piles of gold he just doesn't tell people about, right? You know, so you don't know, you don't know what they're doing. But, you know, gold is money. It's a historical money. It's viewed anywhere around the world basically as money. Yeah, you might get some really backwards primitive culture that wouldn't know what it is. But for most cultures in the world, somehow or another, gold has made its way into a sign of wealth and prosperity, right? Just virtually every culture on the planet, you could see this historical link. So for me, it is kind of a fail-safe asset, not to put a pun on Harry Brown's book. It, it is something that is there. It could be used when needed. I am not a gold bug. I am not, you know, stockpiling gold in my bunker next to my can of beans or anything like that, right? I do not want gold to go up in price because that means the local currency is getting smashed, right? You're getting Argentina or something like that. Like you don't want Argentina, 
right? You don't, you know, so you don't want to cheer on gold going up. It, it's, but at the same time, you don't want to be a chump, right? So you got to own it because these guys who are running the currency, they are going to look out for themselves. That's not you. You're the last in the line. And you need to have an asset that you could touch in an emergency that if everything else has gone to hell, the gold will still be there. And again, it's a psychological thing. And, and that's even partially why Harry Brown advised even, even having some outside the country where you where you live. And people think, well, that's kind of crazy. But if you look at all this stuff that happened in, in Canada or other places, they were freezing bank accounts for no reason, called debanking or whatever, right? They could only do that because those people have all their assets inside that country, right? And it, it's not even a political thing. I don't care where you are in the political spectrum, but it would be a good idea to be able to have an asset like gold somewhere where they can't be easily grabbed. And it, it's not that you're you're doing something criminal. It's more just like you're putting speed bumps in the way of someone doing something really draconian you know, later. And, and gold is one of these assets where it's well suited to that type of application because yes, it does just sit there and it doesn't require much maintenance. You pay a small fee in storage and that's it. And you can add more to it later. If the stock market's doing great, nobody wants gold. No problem. Sell off your stocks when you need to rebalance and buy some more gold. Eventually, people are going to really want gold. Okay, sell some gold off and use that money to buy the stocks again. So it's all part of this, this balance of always wanting to have an asset that people want. Gotcha. And in the book, you've talked and you touched on it a little bit. You've talked about the difference between holding gold physically and holding it in ETF. In the book, you talk about both approaches. So the simple approach is by the ETF, but you also talk about having some physical gold or having all your holdings physical. So what are the kind of key disadvantages and advantages of the two approaches? Yeah. So, you know, the, the gold ETFs are purely for convenience, right? And it, it might be like, let's say you use a, a gold storage service, you know, whatever, there are variety out there. I, I don't want to say any right now. I don't want to seem like I'm endorsing them, but you know, there, there are different ones out there like Perth Mint or these other, whatever, I just said one. I'm not recommending anyone. I'm just saying these, if you look around, you'll find certain companies that do this. It's a bit of a hassle moving money in and out of these services. So for your periphery of your gold allocation, you may say, for instance, okay, I have you know $50,000 in gold and I need to buy another 5,000, but it's a bit of a hassle. I'm just going to use that for my, I'm using ETF for that portion. That's the part I'm rebalancing with. Does that make sense? Because it's very fast. And you might say, I'm willing to accept the risk that ETF goes away because the rest of my gold is at this, this physical storage capacity. So that would be a good way. Another way is, you know, so if you have a small amount of holdings and ETF makes it easy, or if you have if if let's say you only have retirement savings that can't accept physical gold or like, well, we don't, you know, we don't accept gold bars in the fidelity account for the 401k, you know, you are, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't set a gold bar to fidelity anyway. <laughs> so maybe, but, but the point here is like, then you might want to use an ETF to help with that balancing to avoid taxes, right? There might be a tax reason. Gold, gold's taxed at a very high rate compared to a stock. And if you think that you're you're selling for a gain, it might be better to do that as an ETF transaction inside a tax shelter rather than to send that check to Uncle Sam. So, you know, there's different reasons why you might want to do it. Now, the risk of the ETFs obviously is that you don't know what they're doing with the ETF, right? You hope the SEC has controls in place, but the way these derivatives work, do they really have access to it? What happens if the market, something very bad were to happen in the US dollar? 
would I, do I have first, you talk about preferential shares and things that, you know, do I have, does the fund have rights to this gold or is it going to like, suddenly they're going to open the vault and like, it's all dust and an empty pallet. Right. You know, so that's the reason why it's better to have more of a physical access it, and it isn't necessarily locking it all up in your safe under your bed at home that has its own risk of getting stolen. But the idea of a, of a, a custodial storage is what they would call it where you have a little bit more direct knowledge that, okay, this company is known, they're, they're going to have it there if, if I need it. Gotcha. Understood. And gold is there for primarily inflation, correct? That's correct. Inflation, currency crisis, you know, could be serious war conflict, something very bad happening. Or, or again, it's also one of these assets that you could store, you know, overseas and know that, well, if I lost everything with my domestic portfolio, at least I got this small piece here that's still relatively in touch. And it, it might not be they locked your account. It could just be a major financial you know, system crisis in the US where all the banks get shut down to a cyber attack or something. You know, who knows, right? There could be something that happens that halts all the trading. And, you know, again, it's about psychological relief saying, well, I, I still have access to this other stuff that's outside where I am. Gotcha. Okay. And then the next asset is long-term treasuries. So why is it important to specifically own long-term and duration and U.S. government treasuries versus other kinds of bonds? Yeah, right. So the, the long-term treasuries and, and the duration, as you point out, the duration gives you leverage when interest rates move. So the longer a maturity is on a bond, the more sensitive it is to when interest rates go up and down. So if the interest rates shift you know, a, a percentage point on a long-term treasury bond, that might move it up or down 20%. It's, it's a very, very highly leveraged, but it's leveraged in a way that's not leveraged, right? So what, what I mean by that is you're not you're not actually doing margin or anything like that. It's just a very powerful way to move it. I think one of my, my co-author described it as short-term bonds are like playing tennis and long-term bonds are like playing ping pong, right? The action on the ping pong table is much, much faster than a, a tennis match. And, and that's what long-term bonds are. You want a very, very fast a powerful reaction when interest rates shift around, and that's what the long-term bonds give you. Now, now, why treasuries? Treasuries, or you know, we're talking the U.S. here, but again, if you live in a different country, it could be whatever your government is issuing for their bonds. Is you know, these guys control the debt; they can always make money to pay off that debt. They're not going to leave you holding the bag. I'm not saying printing money to pay a debt is a good idea. I'm just saying that. They're not just going to vanish. And again, if they do, then you probably want your gold, right? Because the government has gone kaput. But that, that's a whole separate topic. But the main thing with U.S. Treasuries is that they're not going to default unless something very bad were to happen. Whereas, you know, you could get a municipality could default or, you know, these mortgage-backed securities, people are pushing them for a while because, hey, look, they're paying high interest rates. Well, you know so what, right? They, you know, these people, you know, had to have all their homes foreclosed on and now the you know the the risk comes out in these bonds and the moment you need those bonds they're now actually going down in value because the that risk shows up at the exact moment you don't want the risk there during a deflationary spiral or a big market crash you know that's when you want the bonds to be paying you and going up in value you don't want them having a default risk that now people don't want to touch those either so the treasuries also offer another from a tax advantage too they're, they're not taxed at the state level they can't touch the interest. So, so there's a bit of an advantage there as well if you have to keep them outside of tax uh, deferred 
structure. But mainly the main thing is there's, there's no default risk. And again, it's one of these things that just takes a psychological thinking. And again, during 2008, you know, people were using all these uh, these money market funds that had dubious backing and some of them broke the buck. I don't know if you remember that. And breaking the buck means that instead of being a consistent $1 a share, they went down the leith $1 a share and they actually froze withdrawals. Yeah, right after larger funds. Right after Lehman collapsed, a lot of that chaos happened yeah, in the money right. market. Yeah. Whereas and we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but if you own cash and your bonds are just from treasury, the treasury issued, it's like that's not going to happen because treasury is not defaulting. If treasury defaults, everyone else is gone. Right, all these other bonds are finished. So, you know, you just want to own the creme de the creme de la creme, right? It's just one less thing again to worry about. I don't need to open up the newspaper in the morning and, and worry about, you know, a default risk on them. Gotcha. And so treasuries are there primarily for a deflationary or recession scenario, right? That that's correct. Yeah. You know, and again, interest rates are still quite low now, but they're going up. But you know, in in the nineteen thirties or in the Great Depression, I think long term bonds got under one percent or something, if I recall correctly. People are like, yeah. that's impossible. I'm like, no, it, it is possible. It could happen. Right. <laughs> you know, if the, if unemployment got very high and companies started shutting down, stock markets gone down, people would be very happy to have one percent. Right. No, knowing that, the, again, they're not losing all their money because, again, banks are closing, bank runs, there's all sorts of trouble. Right. So, you know, would you be happy to even you might even be happy to pay a little bit of interest. I think some of them went negative for a while just to know your money was not going to evaporate during a bank closing. Yeah. And you really saw that in 08, like they were up 20 percent. And then during the depths of the covid thing, I mean, long term treasuries really helped that drawdown. Stocks were, I think, down 25, 30% at that point. And then the permanent portfolio was only down like, I think, 5% throwing all of that thanks to yeah. long-term treasuries and, and gold. So one thing is long-term treasuries, they just had a big drawdown. So this gets back into what you were talking about earlier. You need to look at the portfolio and not just the individual asset. But what's your take on the drawdown that treasuries just experienced? I haven't looked lately. I don't look at my portfolio much, so I haven't been tracking it. I'll be honest with you. It all kind of worked out at the end. You know, really, I, I suggest you set up rebalancing bands, right? It's 25% each. I think generally Harry Brown said it, you know, it gets a 35% of an asset. If an asset reaches 35%, you should sell it down to 25%, then take that 10% and put it into your loser. If an asset is 15% or less, you should buy it back up to 25%. I would just say, just stick to the plan. And again, there are a lot of people saying treasuries, inflation, that I, I get it. All this has been said before. And I, you just don't know when they're going to turn around. You just don't know. So I would, you know, I, I I would stick to the plan and not try not to pay too much attention to each individual asset. Again, look at the portfolio in total. And I'm happy when I have to sell down an asset to buy a loser. I actually look forward to it hmm. because I know I like buying things on sale, right? Who wants to pay full price? Right. So you should look at it in, the, in those terms. I'm buying this asset on sale. Not that I'm buying a loser. That's that's not true at all. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, the thing with bonds was, was interesting. So they had this big drawdown through October of last year. And then everybody was saying, oh, well, inflation's out of control. They're never going to be able to cut interest rates. And then almost exactly when that sentiment was there, the Fed, inflation comes down, the Fed signals they're going to start cutting. And then long-term treasuries had have had this big rally over the last few months. So have they? Okay. Yeah. I totally believe it. Again, you just don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's funny. It's funny to watch. So the other asset is cash. So 
you know, a common adage you'll hear from investors like Ray Dalio is cash is trash. Why is cash not trash and why should it be a part of a portfolio? Well, because again, you, you don't know what your timeline is. So, you know, you might need, you might have an emergency right when all the assets are doing poorly. And that's uncommon that they all do poorly at once, but it could happen. And if you have that cash there, you could draw down your cash and leave the other assets alone, which means you're not paying taxes on gains or you know, you're know you not selling a loser when you don't really want to because you want to be buying it more. So it gives you, again, a buffer, the ability to say, I, I could pay my mortgage, right? I could cover this medical bill. I could pay for this emergency, right? It, it gives you, again, that psychological burden, or it gives you the option that if the assets are all doing poorly. You could say, I'm going to move some cash and buy these things because they're on sale, right? You have options. And, and that's a really important thing with the portfolio. And, and, and again, something I learned from the security side of things is you always want to have an option when things go wrong, right? You got to have options to get out of the mess. And if you put too much focus on one particular asset and it, you're wrong, you know, now you have limited options. But if you own all these different assets, including cash, you have all these options. And the people, again, who say this cash is trash or this or that is, you know, I don't believe them, first of all, that they don't hold cash. Like, again, we talked about Warren Buffett earlier. I mean, that well, guy he has a lot of cash. Yeah. He's flush with cash because yeah. he knows he's waiting for the market and for a value stock in your case, right? Value. He, he's waiting for a stock to become a good buy. And he's just going to flood in with that cash and just buy heaps of it. Right. So you always want to have the cash share because, again, not just for life emergencies, but also for opportunistic investing and things like that that you want to do. And the cash really provides a really good anchor in the portfolio against that you could ride out when everything's really frothy and moving around and, and you don't know what's going to move up next. The cash gives you that option as a buffer to sit there. And again, it just gives you another option in your toolkit you can use if needed. Gotcha. And when you're talking about cash, you're not talking about obviously physical cash. You talk about different options and ways to hold cash. So what are some of those options that that are kind of permanent portfolio approved to hold cash? Yeah. So Harry Brown would say T-bills, at which I would agree. Your your shortest of short-term cash should be a T-bill, T-bill, you know, maturity in three to six months. It's rolling over very frequently. Uh, it does surprisingly well under inflationary situations because, again, the interest rates are adjusting. Your the bills are maturing, and you're buying new high interest rate ones. So it tends to keep up with inflation. And then after that, if you have a lot of cash, then you maybe could go to a short term treasury of maybe one to two year at max, you know, maturity, and that gives you a little bit more interest rates, not that much risk. And again, if you can, if you have enough cash, you could say, well, I'm willing to take that little risk because I can wait out one to two years, because my my six months of shorter cash is so much, I can wait it out if I have to for them to kind of come back up. But usually it'd be, again, treasuries only, you know, don't, I wouldn't even do bank CDs. I, I would, I would just do treasuries. Uh, again, you don't have, you don't want to wake up and find out that the bank you bought, hey, these high interest rates bearing CDs, oh, the bank's now an FDIC receivership. You know, I mean, FDIC will probably pay, but I mean, do you really want to be sweating bullets? Like, Again, during 2008, it was the same deal. I just didn't have to worry about it. My, I knew my T bills were there. I didn't have to worry about having my, you know, account was frozen. I couldn't get withdrawals while they figured it out. Then, like, is FDIC even going to pay? Are they not? How's am I going to get, you know, three cents in the dollar? Right? You don't have to think about any of that stuff if you own T bills. So T bills, if you own a lot of cash, maybe you can extend it a bit with some short term treasuries. But please only use treasuries. Don't don't 
stretch for interest doing other stuff. You want your cash to be very, very safe. Gotcha. Yeah. And the perfect example was that money market situation that you outlined earlier. So looking at the permanent portfolio, what do you think are the prospects for it from here? So, you know, over the last decade, you had very low interest rates. Now interest rates are higher, so that should benefit cash and treasuries. What, how do you think about the prospects of it from here, or is that not something you really take into consideration? I don't look at it too much. I mean, you know, pe- people have doom and gloom predictions for everything, and you know, there'll probably be people listening to your podcast that don't live in the United States, so mm-hmm. each country is going to have its own unique risks. You know, the way you know I view it is, you know, the you know there might be a risk that, for instance, like the U.S. dollar might lose reserve status that'd be that's a a a plausible scenario do i know a better way to invest if that were to happen probably not i mean what are you going to buy you can buy euros you can buy you know what i mean i right. mean you could be jumping from the frying pan and in, in, into the into the fire right so you know i hold the gold to accommodate that and also your stocks too you know these companies are going to make decisions to save themselves so you know the stock and the gold and those even these dire situations will probably be what you would need to rely on. So I'd still would say wide diversification, like a permanent portfolio is still a really, really good idea. If people are like really bearish on gold, I get it. I hear that sometimes, you know, maybe you could say, well, some real property investment, you might, okay, maybe you want to do that. You know, I don't know if a REIT or something is going to be a better selection, frankly, but I get it why some people don't like it. But the, the main thing that gold provides is an easy way to access a real asset. If you're dead set against it, Okay, buy some property or something, right? U.S. Treasury bonds. Some people are like, well, for you know, ethical reasons, I don't want to own it. Da da da. Okay, maybe you could look at some corporate long-term bonds. But again, I just like, eh, I don't know. I keep my politics out of my investing, right? Because it just it could cloud your judgment. So in terms of permanent portfolio, I you know I currently am sticking with it. I don't have a particular reason to shift. And I just don't know what I would really shift into that would be particularly any better. You know, what what assets would I replace it with? And if I did, how would I split it? Is that split going to be any better than what we got now? I, I, I don't know. So I, you know, so for me, I kind of view it as, you know, kind of wait and see. I guess nowadays people look at stuff like cryptocurrencies and stuff. I, I don't, I don't buy them. So I don't, uh, I, I don't know if I would move that move that into the portfolio. I'd be very reluctant to do it. I think they have a variety of other risks, new risks you need to consider. But in general, I just kind of stay stay with what I know works. What's your opinion about cryptocurrencies? That's a new thing since you wrote the book. What's your opinion? Yeah. So I have over 30 years of experience in cybersecurity. I'm not a cryptographer, but I, I've, I've been involved with projects that, to attack cryptographic systems and, and do things like that. So I'm not a cryptographer though. And I like cryptocurrencies. I like the concept of them. And I've used them a little bit just playing around. I don't think they're an investment. I, th- I think they have some significant risks that people need to take into very careful consideration. First is that US government might, might simply, and other governments might get together and just ban them. It's like, you cannot use these to convert into European, American, or other currency. It's just illegal. And you, you know, people are like, well, how could they do that? Well, you look at something like Monero, just highly anonymous, but a lot of exchanges won't deal with it now because they won't be allowed to, right? So that they could essentially make it that nobody wants to touch it except, you know, for use of black market purposes. So there, there is a risk there that they could do that with a, a Bitcoin or something like that and just say, 
you just can't use it. And oh, by the way, if we see you're in possession of it, you're, these massive IRS fines are going to come down on you, right? So that they can make it just basically a black sheet, right? And you know, I know there's some people who claim that can never be done because of the nature of, but that that's not really you know true in my opinion. I, I think they could actually make the average person not want to go anywhere near it. The second thing that really concerns me with them is that as somebody who's been in cybersecurity for a long time, I have seen the cryptographic systems come and go. They've been attacked. And the attacks, as Bruce Schneier is a famous cryptographer, is cryptographic attacks only get better over time. So the minute you get something getting attacked, the attacks only get better and better and better as the years go on, processing power improves all these other things. I would be concerned that a cryptographic breakthrough could happen against these systems that would render them completely worthless overnight, right? And you know what I mean by that is if you look at, for instance, like cryptographic caching algorithms, like, you know, we're now, they started off at MD4, MD5. Oh, they had problems, collision attacks, and they went to SHA. Then they went to SHA-1, and now SHA-1 had enough attacks at NIST now, which drew that. Now they're in the SHA-2, SHA-3 series of attacks. So these cryptographic hashes that are a fundamental in a lot of these systems have been subjected to attacks. Also, cryptographic systems, public key, private key systems have been subject to attacks. I would be nervous about waking up in the morning, finding out that a cryptographic attack has been released, and now my wallet is zero, right? Which can't wow. happen. It can't happen with, you know, I'm not worried about my bank account going to zero, right? The government would step in and not allow that to happen. Yeah. You know, you, you know, have I'm a central authority yet. you can appeal to. <laughs> They do. And and the crypto, you can't. And, you know, for all we know, I, I'm speculating here, right? Some really smart guys at these intelligence agencies around the world, really world-class cryptographers, for all you know, it's they've already broken these systems. And in the middle of a conflict, they're going to let it loose and just cause trouble, right? I mean, you just don't know. And, it can ha and nobody's going to step in to stop Bitcoin from going to zero. These guys don't care. They view it as a threat, right? So they're not going to step in to save. The other thing I see from the cybersecurity side is I've been involved in situations where cryptocurrency is easily stolen and there's no clawback mechanism. Like once that key's taken, the wallet is empty, there's no way to get that money back. Whereas again, with a conventional account, for all its warts that people complain about, the bank could be like, they could make you whole or they could claw back. If like a fraudulent wire happens, they could claw it back and get your money back, right? If your currency, it, it, someone could steal it or you could lose the key and now you can never get it back again because the cryptography is in the way, you know? So I would be, I know people are big on it and they want to make it a big part of life savings. Again, for variable portfolio, go for it, right? As your core life savings, I would be very, very, very nervous about waking up one day and find out something surprises me. But I, I would not, I would not gamble my life savings on the on the the security of any cryptographic system that's out there, just because the history of them is littered with broken. People come up with new attacks all the time. And I know I, I'm going to get grief in your comments. People are going to jump all over me. But <laughs> the list of broken cryptographic systems is long and storied, and I would highly recommend not risking everything you own on the security of any cryptographic protocol. I'm pretty outspoken against cryptocurrency, so I, I don't think my audience... Oh, you are. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, my thing is, I think of after 9-11, okay, the United States government went ahead and imposed all kinds of banking regulations and really focused on 
the movement of money around the world is a major concern. And cryptocurrency has just made that easier to do. So I think the government is inevitably going to ban it because it's being used widely by terrorists and rogue states and that sort of thing. It's kind of my take on it. They probably will. What I don't want is I definitely do not want to see a central bank digital currency. That that would be a disaster. And I think they're going to try to actually push for that. If, if they implement a central bank digital currency, they will have total control of everybody. They'll be able to shut your money off whenever they feel like it. They'll be able to, to, to tie it into other mechanisms to control what people are doing. I think it'll be a nightmare. So, I mean, one way or another, we're going to have to deal with crypto. Other government <laughs> issued or non-government issued. I I I worry about both scenarios. I see. Uh, well, I hope that doesn't happen. I do I like physical I, cash too. Like that's always a nice thing to have. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I, I I try to use physical cash when I can more than electronic stuff. But yeah, for that that reason, let's just keep cash out there. Cash is cash is good. Let people don't get used to the idea of letting you know it be bits and bytes. And I do this for a living. And I'm telling you, it's a bad idea. Gotcha. Cool. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. Do you have any parting parting words of wisdom for, for the audience? Yeah. You know, in, investing is just as much psychological as it is absolute returns. You should make sure you're investing in a way that you could ride out those bumps when they happen because they're going to happen. And also make sure you're investing in a way that if your timeline doesn't match these theoretical 40, 50 year horizons that you can still access money and not be put yourself in a bad situation. So, you know, protect your life savings. You can't go back and re-earn it again, you know, so be careful what you do and keep things simple and you'll be okay. Cool. Thank you so much for your time and coming on today. Great. Thanks for having me here. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.